So we're going to take a short break from the book of Joshua while Jeremy's on his three-week vacation. And we're going to do a short series over the next three weeks in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, can you turn? We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 this week. Next week, Paul Kalkinen will be preaching 1 Samuel 2. And the following week, I'll be back with 1 Samuel 3. And perhaps if the Lord wills in the months that follow, we'll be able to pick up the story. We're going to start this morning, though, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is the reading of God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. 
And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Our God in heaven, your word is light. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts now, that as we look at this passage together, you would help us to understand its message and apply that message to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I think my favorite of C.S. Lewis's Narnia series is The Horse and His Boy. It follows the journey of a boy named Shasta and a girl named Erebus as they make their way on their horses up toward the north country to Narnia. On their journey, they are frightened and chased and even wounded at different times by, by lions. And in one particular encounter, they're fleeing from this evil army and they're running as fast as they can. Well, at least the horses are running as fast as they think they can, which is not quite the same thing. Then a lion appears with his ferocious snarl, and the two horses find these untapped reserves of energy and strength to propel the group to safety. And later, Shasta finds himself speaking to this lion. And I'm going to read some of their conversation. If you haven't read the story and it's on your reading list, then you might just want to tune out for a second. Um, It's a little bit of a spoiler alert, but um, let me read a little bit of this conversation that Shasta has with the lion. He says, Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice. I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Jasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. C.S. Lewis captures in this exchange a truth about God that Hannah learns in the story that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And by God's grace, I hope that you and I will learn this message this morning as well. And that message is that God uses trials to humble us so that he can graciously give us himself. God uses trials to humble us so that he can graciously give us himself. Before we get into the details of Hannah's story, let me lay some groundwork since it's our first time in the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are actually one work, like a multi-volume set. 
Um, it's split into two volumes. We don't actually know who the author is, but the, there was clearly an author who collected and arranged the different accounts in these two books to tell a coherent story of true historical events that occurred in the life of Israel around 1050 B.C. up to maybe about 1000 B.C. And this book is not just a rehearsing of facts. You know, the, the histories in the Bible, they are true history. They do record facts. But the authors purposefully arrange them to tell a story and to tell us and to teach us about God. It is actually both a story and a theological treatise rolled into one in ways that we can easily remember in stories like Hannah, like David and Goliath, like Saul and David, and so on. You know, in the Hebrew Bible, there were actually three main sections, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the book that we're in now, 1 Samuel, as well as Joshua, this whole section from Joshua to 2 Kings, was actually part of the prophets. So that tells you a little bit about the purpose of these books. They were considered part of the former prophets. And just like the prophets that we think of, like maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, how they would speak God's word to God's people. So the former prophets, the author of 1 Samuel, for instance, wrote these historical events in order to reveal God to his people. So when we come to a text like ours, like a story, a story like Hannah, we should not just look for what it meant for Hannah, but we should look for what this passage teaches us about God. We should expect us to learn ourselves, that we should expect to learn about God from this text. If you look at the big picture of these two works, First and Second Samuel, you'll see there's three main characters that it's going to follow. We're going to start by following Samuel in chapters 1 through 7. He will be the final judge who will rule over Israel and transition them from the time of the judges to the time of the monarchy. And the first monarch, Saul, the first king, he will be the second character that the book follows in chapters 8 through 15 of 1 Samuel. And then we're going to spend almost 40 chapters following the second monarch in the nation of Israel. You kids remember who that second king was? King David. The narrative is going to slow down and spend almost 40 chapters following the life and ministry, the rule of King David. So if you look at the big picture of the book, we begin here in the time of the judges with a feast of the Lord at Shiloh and this family of Elkanah. And the story is going to follow how God establishes King David on his throne. And at the very end of the book, we're going to see David purchasing land that will be used to build the temple to the Lord in Jerusalem. So this book is actually, the big picture of this is a story about how God is working through history to take his people from being a ragtag bunch of tribes who are doing whatever seems right in their own eyes to a kingdom that is established under the rule of David where God would be worshipped in his temple. You know, going all the way back to Genesis, you might remember that God had promised to Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. That was Genesis 12.3. And that his offspring would dwell in this land of Canaan and that kings would come from him. That's Genesis 17.6. And now what we're seeing in the book of Joshua, as Jeremy's unpacking that for us, how God brought the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, into the land of Canaan, how he drove out the wicked nations before them and he established them in the land. It's interesting, we haven't got there yet, but in Joshua 18, Joshua is going to gather together at Shiloh, the site, the scene of our text. He's going to gather the tribes together at Shiloh and divvy up their inheritance. He's going to give them different portions of their land. That's Joshua 18, 1 through 10. And so we see even in the book of Joshua, this place at Shiloh had become a place of meeting for God's people. 
And it is to this same place that Elkanah and his, and his unhappy family travel each year for a feast to the Lord. But just as all is not well in Elkanah's family, all is not well in Shiloh. In fact, all is not well in Israel. Between the book of Joshua and 1 Samuel, there's a span of about 450 years. It's covered in the book of Judges. And actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the book of Ruth was in the writing, so it was separate. So if you were reading in the Hebrew Bible, you'd, you'd finish the book of Judges, and then you'd start into 1 Samuel. And if you go to the end of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, you find a scene of chaos and corruption that characterizes the nation of Israel at that time. You read this horrific story. You're meant to come away in shock because in that story, the, the people of Israel had fallen into civil war. They'd, been trying, they'd almost wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. And then they had sworn that they wouldn't give their own daughters to the tribe of Benjamin to be their wives. So we had this, this tribe, Benjamin, on the verge of extinction. And so they try to come up with a plan of how are we going to pro- procure wives for the, the Benjamites. And they, so they come up with this plan. They say, well, there's an annual feast of the Lord at Shiloh. Well, how about we send the Benjamites to Shiloh, and then when these young women go out to dance at this feast, we'll let them go out and kidnap the young women so that they can become their wives. Judges twenty one twenty three says, And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. So two verses later, the author of Judges provides his inspired commentary on the behavior of Israel at that time. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the words of one biblical scholar, Stephen Dempster, in the absence of proper leadership, all hell has broken loose. Now, some time has passed between Judges 21 and 1 Samuel 1, but we see there's actually still an annual feast to the Lord at Shiloh. And the feast days are actually still an occasion for chaos and corruption, although our text is restrained in its description of that corruption until chapter 2. We'll get to see that next week. But the author of 1 Samuel instead chooses instead to open his history by focusing on the humble faith of a barren woman. Let's just, let's just let that sink in for a second before we dive into the text. Everything's going to pot in Israel. God's law is being disregarded by those who are supposed to be the leaders. The tribes are doing whatever they seem, whatever seems right in their own eyes. It appears that God's promises are in jeopardy, but God does not panic. He does not throw up his hands in desperation at how his plans are going sideways. Instead, he invites us, he calls us here to consider how he accomplishes his purpose through the humble faith of ordinary people who endure affliction and difficulties that are part of this broken world. You know, in the words of Jesus, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Matthew 16, 18. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In God's economy, the kingdom of God advances through situations like this, like a woman enduring affliction and praying earnestly for her son. And in the end, we'll see how God is able to turn the tables and bring about mighty deliverance through seemingly small acts of humble faith. His promises may appear to be slow to come to fruition. They may seem to be under threat from the world around us. But we can trust that he is accomplishing his purposes. 
We may not understand them, but we can trust that he is bringing about those good purposes. That's the big picture of the books of First and Second Samuel, starting where we are here in First Samuel 1 to the end of Second Samuel. That's, if you will, the forest. But now we're going to zoom in and look at the trees in chapter 1. We're going to observe in Hannah's story how the God works in her life and how these lessons apply to our life today. So we're going to consider Hannah's story in three sections. Three sections. First, we'll see Hannah's problem in verses 1 through 8. Second, we'll see Hannah's prayer in verses 9 through 20. And third, Hannah's promise in 21 through 28. So Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's promise. Verses 1 through 8. Our text begins by introducing us to Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. And from the very beginning, you might guess that this marital arrangement would be the cause of some tension. You know, there's a reason why God's plan is for marriage between one man and one woman. The Bible does not endorse polygamy, but it does report it as fact. But we know, even from other similar situations in the Bible, that this has often led to conflict and sorrow, such as you might remember Jacob, who married Leah and Rachel, two sisters, and they ended up fighting for their husband's affection. And so it is in this case, Hannah and Penina were in a position of rivalry, each vying for the affection of their husband. And in this rivalry, Penina has the trump card. She has given Elkanah children, sons and daughters, we are told in verse 4, plural. And Hannah has none. And yet, Hannah's name comes from the same word that means favor or grace. And so we sense a tension already here in verse 2. If Hannah is favored, if she's the object of grace, then why does she have no children? Maybe she's done something to upset God. Maybe there's something wrong with her. Maybe her husband doesn't love her. Maybe God has forgotten her. I'm sure that Hannah has struggled through all of these questions, and her rival Penina had no doubt done her part to help her along this journey towards sorrow and distress. But we see in verse 3 that this family, at least Elkanah's husband, is a worshiper, or Elkanah, Hannah's husband, he's a worshiper of Yahweh, the one true God. You see that in verse 3. He would go up to worship the Lord of hosts. When you see the Lord, as you're going to see him prominently throughout 1 Samuel, and you see it all in capitals, L-O-R-D, that is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. That is the, the covenant name of God. The name that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush. The name of God's power and transcendence where he said, I am who I am. But it's also the name of God's steadfast love and mercy. It's a name that came to be associated with Yahweh's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt. And he's not just Yahweh. He's not just the Lord. He's the Lord of hosts. Hosts are the heavenly armies The Lord of hosts is the God who rules the world and he commands these armies. He does what he pleases in heaven and earth and none can stay his hand. Israel is in disarray. Hannah's dreams have been shattered and yet the Lord is on his throne. From his throne, he's in control of all things, both the chaos in Shiloh and the conflict in Elkanah's household. And this conflict is particularly stirred up year after year when they attend this feast to the Lord at Shiloh. 
This would be a time when they would come together and they would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. They would burn a portion of the offering as a sacrifice to God. They would give a portion of the offering to the priests. And then the family themselves would eat a portion of it in a celebratory meal to the Lord. If you've ever been a single person at a meal with a lot of children, you may understand Hannah's situation. Penina would undoubtedly have an infant or, or two on her hip, and she's cutting up food for all her children who are going to be asking her nonstop questions so that she can hardly stop to take a bite. And perhaps this would have bothered Penina if it didn't also give her an opportunity to irritate Hannah, to make snide comments about how many children she had and how she had such a hard time keeping track of them, and all, keep, keeping track of them all, and all the while glancing at Hannah with gloating eyes. This is the point of verse 6. It says, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Notice that Penina is no longer mentioned by name. And actually, she won't be mentioned by name again in the story. Now she is her rival. And the author here in verse 6 actually uses a play on words to show us the depth of Hannah's misery and the spiritual nature of this conflict. The verb in in verse 6 that is translated to irritate her, it actually comes from the form of the word for thunder. So it's almost like Penina's irritation is like a dark thundercloud that just hangs over Hannah, waiting to pour out on her harsh, biting words. But the author of 1 Samuel uses this verb three other times in the book, total of four. In all of the other accounts, it's not a person irritating someone else. It's actually the Lord thundering against his enemies. And that's what Hannah's going to sing about in her song, or pray about in her song, in chapter 2, verse 10, where she says, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. It's the same word. And David sings about this at the end of the book in 2 Samuel twenty-two fourteen, where he says, the Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. So in both Hannah's prayer and David's song, we see that Yahweh is the one who thunders against his enemies to defeat them and deliver his saints. Notice that Hannah does not return thunder For thunder to Penina. She, we are meant to see here, she is trusting in the Lord who will do her thundering for her. He will thunder against her rivals on her behalf. So this is Hannah's problem. Not only is she barren, no doubt she wants children and she does not have them, but her rival wife is a spiritual enemy to this woman, seeking to cause her to despair and sink into misery and loneliness. And where is God? Where is this Lord of hosts, this covenant God who commands the hosts of heaven? Where is he in the midst of Hannah's trouble? The author tells us twice, in case we're slow on the uptake. And now let me just warn you, if your goal is to write a Christian song that makes it big on Christian radio these days, you might just want to tune out. You want to avoid these kinds of uncomfortable truths about God. But then you would have a God who is actually less than the God of Scripture, So if you are to believe in the God of Scripture, let's listen to what the Scripture teaches us about this God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Where is God in the midst of Hannah's trouble? Verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion. That is, Elkanah gave her a double portion of the food because he loved her, though the Lord, though Yahweh, had closed her womb. And verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her, grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. The word order in verse 5 is actually emphatic to highlight that the Lord is the active agent in this situation. 
It's not as though he views this situation as an outside observer or even that he just permits this situation to unfold in Hannah's life. He's not passive. The text is clear. The Lord was the cause of Hannah's barrenness. The God of steadfast love and mercy, the God of infinite power and goodness, the God who delivered his people from Egypt, this God had closed Hannah's womb to prevent her from having children. Now, if you've been reading through your Old Testament, this might remind you of some previous stories in the Bible. In fact, we find that barren women play a very prominent role in the history of redemption. God is active in both closing and opening the wombs of these women. If you go back to Genesis and read the story of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you find that Sarah, Abraham's wife, was barren until the Lord opened her womb at an old age in Genesis 16 and 21. The next generation, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, she was barren until Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord granted his prayer, Genesis 21, 25. And then their son, Jacob, would marry two women, Rachel and Leah. They contended with each other in their home, and we read of them as well. We read in Genesis 29, 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. The Lord has the power to do that. But he says, but Rachel was barren. And then a chapter later in Genesis 30, verse 22, it says, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So why would God close the wombs of so many women in the history of redemption, only to open them later? Why would God repeatedly lead his children through the pain and the heartache of this drama if his intention all along was to give them children? In Hannah's case, you can imagine the questions she voices in her sorrow. Why does God allow this to go on year after year? Is God still good? Is God still powerful? Does God care about me? Aren't these the questions you and I ask in the midst of our pain? Let's move on to see how the author answers these questions in the rest of the chapter. This is Hannah's problem, verses 1 through 8. Now let's look at Hannah's prayer in verses 9 through 20. And here we transition to focus in on one particular encounter in a string of sorrows that Hannah endured. This year, when Hannah rises from the table and flees the provocation of Penina, we follow her as she enters the house of the Lord, tears streaming down her face. You notice how the narration slows down and zooms in on this encounter now between Hannah and Eli. And we begin to see here glimpses of the work that God has been doing in Hannah's heart as we listen in on her prayer in verses 10 and 11. We're going to notice a few things about Hannah's prayer. First, notice her deep emotion. The Hebrew text actually piles up descriptions of Hannah's grief. She was deeply distressed. Literally, she was bitter of soul. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. The literal translation would be that weeping she wept. She calls on God to look upon her her affliction. This is how we are to respond when we face bitter trials. It is right to grieve in the face of sorrow. Grief is not a sign of unbelief or weak faith. 
Notice that Hannah does not ignore or downplay her emotions. She does not simply endure her hardship with a stiff upper lip and harden her heart against God in anger or bitterness. She does not let her pain fester in her heart to grow into bitterness. She does not nurse a desire for vengeance against her adversary. She does not build walls around her heart to stop herself from feeling the pain of her situation or relating to God in faith. Instead, she cries out to God in her sorrow. And when you're grieving, he desires for you to cry out to him from the depth of your sorrow as well. We not only notice Hannah's deep emotion, but we also notice her deep faith. Notice how she addresses God. O Lord of hosts. We saw this description of God already in verse 3. She believes that God is the covenant God who has the power to act for her, the God who had the power to deliver his people in the past. And now she's calling out to him to repeat his past acts of deliverance in a new work for her. She knew the stories of the saints of old. She knew the stories of the barren women in the past who went before her. She knew that God had acted for Sarah, for Rebecca, for Leah and Rachel. And no doubt the story of Leah and Rachel in particularly resonated with her. These two women had endured that painful rivalry in their marriage to Jacob, just like she has been enduring with Penina. And in Genesis 29 to 30, we read how God looked on their affliction, those two women, remembered them and opened their wombs to give them children. Hannah knows these stories, and she actually uses words from those accounts to call upon God to act now for her. She's actually quoting in her prayer parts of Genesis 30, 22 and 29, 31. Notice she's not blaming God. She's not turning away from him. She's not accusing him of being unjust or unloving. She may not be able to answer the why questions. But she believes that the same God who acted for Leah and Rachel had the power to act for her. And she calls upon him to remember her. Now, God doesn't forget anything. This language of remembering is a common way in the Old Testament that they speak, the Old Testament speaks of God acting in accordance with his promises. It's how Moses wrote about God acting to deliver the Israelites from their bondage. He said in Exodus 2.24 that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He never forgot his covenant, but he did allow his people to endure hardship that appeared to call into question his faithfulness, that appeared to cast doubt upon his promises. His faithfulness never changes. He never forgets his people. He never leaves them or forsakes them. But sometimes our circumstances seem to indicate to us that God is not in control. And in those situations, it is right for us, together with Hannah, to cry out to God in faith, to ask him to act in accordance with his promises, to remember those promises to us. Hannah's faith also expresses itself in her promise at the end of this verse, verse 11, to offer up her son to the Lord as one set apart to him. This was just what Samson's parents did for him. That's also another story of a barren woman in Judges 13. God gave them a child and they offered him up to the Lord. This is what Hannah promised to do if the Lord would give her a son. We've seen Hannah's deep faith and also her deep emotion, but notice also her perseverance in prayer. Verse 12 literally is that Hannah multiplies her prayers to the Lord. She doesn't give up. Remember, this has been going on year after year. 
Have you ever prayed for something year after year? It's hard to persevere in prayer, but Hannah does so, and she reminds us of this truth, the same truth that Jesus taught us in Luke 18. He told the parable of the woman who kept nagging this unrighteous judge until he finally gave her justice, and he argues from lesser to greater. If that's how an unrighteous judge acts, how much greater will our God, who is both righteous and good, give what is needful to his children who cry out to him repeatedly? He told that so that his, children, his disciples would know that they should pray and not lose heart. This is how Hannah prayed. She continued year after year. And even in this, as we see her faith and as we see her perseverance, we're beginning to see part of the answer to what God is doing in closing her womb. Now, as much as Hannah's prayer is instructive to us, we see Eli's response is the opposite. Here's how not to be on the greeting team at church. (laughs) Hannah has come into God's house to pour out her heart before the Lord, and instead of receiving comfort or encouragement or a listening ear, she's rebuked for being drunk. Let this be a reminder to us who are Christians that we should not be too quick to pass judgment on those who come into the church with baggage. Personal lives and struggles, all of us have them. Let us learn from Eli that we should not be too quick to jump to conclusions. To give him some credit here, though, it likely says something about the state of worship in Israel at the time. Remember, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. That it maybe wasn't uncommon to have a drunk woman who has overindulged at this sacrificial feast coming into the temple. It doesn't excuse his poor judgment, but it tells us how far the worship of the Lord has degenerated in this time. Hannah responds in verses 15 and 16. Do not... Uh, She says in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. Again, notice the depth of her sorrow. I'm troubled in spirit. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And she appeals to Eli not to regard her as a worthless woman. Now, there's tremendous irony here in at least two ways. And I have to take a little bit of a sneak peek ahead at chapter 2, which we'll look into more next week. But... Eli is confronting Hannah for being drunk in the house of the Lord. But all the while, if you know the story, he's been overlooking the immorality and corruption of his own sons who are priests in the house of the Lord. And Eli treats Hannah as being a worthless woman, verse 16. Literally, that's a daughter of Belial. This is a term that's not used often in the Old Testament, but it is used to talk, Moses uses it to talk about people who would lead the people into idolatry. The book of Judges uses it to talk about those who practice gross sexual immorality. And the irony here is that Eli's own sons were those who were leading the people into idolatry and gross sexual immorality. And in chapter 2, verse 12, The inspired author tells us that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, were sons of Belial, worthless men. So here in our first introduction to Eli, we're beginning to see the cracks in his leadership, his poor judgment and weak resolve. And yet, despite all this, Eli speaks a blessing upon Hannah in verse 17. And Hannah accepts this word of favor from him and lifts up her countenance and eats. That word favor in verse 18, let your servant find favor in your eyes. When we hear that word, we should remember that's actually the same word that comes from Hannah's name. In Hebrew, it sounds very similar. And so here we see another glimpse of light shining through the darkness of Hannah's trial. 
there is hope that the Lord will show her favor. And indeed, that's what happens in the text matter-of-factly recounts for us in verse 19 and 20. They rose in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, they went back home, Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. She conceived and bore a son, called his name Samuel, which means heard of God or heard by God. She rightly understood that this son was given to her by God, that God had been the one to close her womb for those many years, and now God had been the one to open her womb in response to her prayers. So why would God close her womb, cause her to suffer for these many years, and then give her a son after all? Maybe some of the contours of God's providence are shaping in your mind, but we'll return to that question after we look at our third section. So we've seen Hannah's problem, verses 1 through 8, her prayer, verses 9 through 20, and now her promise in 21 through 28. In this section, our story comes to a close by showing us the fulfillment of Hannah's promise that she had made to the Lord back in verse 11, where she had said that if the Lord would give her a son, then she would give him back to the Lord all the days of his life. Elkanah and his family continue making this annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to worship the Lord, but Hannah waits until Samuel is weaned, most likely when he's three or four years old. Verse 24 tells us that she takes him up to Shiloh along with a bowl and flour and wine, which would be necessary for the sacrifices at this feast. And the narrator confirms for us that the boy was young. That The Hebrew is actually even more explicit. At the end of verse 24, it says, the young boy was young. This may be alarming to you if you're a parent. It may seem irresponsible even. Imagine taking your three or four-year-old son and giving him away. And not only to to someone else, not to anyone, but to Eli, who has a terrible record of raising his own sons. And those sons are actively practicing sexual immorality in the same temple where Samuel is is going to be serving. As alarming as this may seem, the author wants us to see that Hannah's trust was in the Lord. In verses 26 to 28, the, the account comes to a close with words from Hannah to Eli. And notice there that the Lord, Yahweh, features prominently in her closing words. She prayed to the Lord. The Lord granted her petition. Now she has lent Samuel to the Lord. He is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She is giving back to the Lord what he has given to her. Hannah's faith in the Lord had been nurtured through her affliction. She had seen that the Lord had power to give her a son. And so now she reasons with the logic of faith that if the Lord is able to open her womb to give her a son, then if she honors her vow and returns that son to the Lord, then he is surely able to protect and care for her son as he is dedicated to the Lord for his service, even in the midst of the wickedness at Shiloh. The chapter closes now with a short statement that Samuel worships the Lord at Shiloh, and thus the stage is set to follow the life and ministry of this young boy, Samuel, over the next few chapters. You know, Hannah could not have known what we know. She could not have known that the role that her son would play in the coming years, that he would be the key figure to guide the nation of Israel out of the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes to the establishment of the monarchy, that he would be the one, the one to anoint David as king, over the nation of Israel. And so even in the midst of Hannah's distress and deliverance, God was working to establish his kingdom and fulfill his promises. 
having walked through this story, let's consider the main message for our lives. The story of Hannah shows us that we serve a God who rescues the humble from affliction and brings life to the dead. This is our God. This is how he works. This is at least in part why there are so many barren women in the history of redemption. To teach us that God alone is the source of life. That he alone is the source of deliverance and hope. As Hannah will say in her prayer in chapter 2, not by might shall man prevail. But God not only rescues Hannah from affliction, he also, as we saw, caused her affliction. Twice we were told that the Lord had closed her womb. How are we to understand this working of the Lord in Hannah's life? And how are we to, to apply that to our own lives as we think about our own affliction? Now, Hannah reflected upon the Lord working in her life in chapter 2. We'll get more into this next week, but a sneak peek ahead at verses 6 and 7. She says this when she prayed to the Lord. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. She was likely remembering or reflecting upon a song that Moses had sung, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 32. And there we read the following words. This is the Lord speaking in Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. It says, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Hannah understood from her own life what Moses had understood through God's working in the nation of Israel, that there is no God like Yahweh, that he has supreme authority, that he brings low and he exalts. He wounds and he heals. Now, we must be careful here to recognize what the Bible clearly teaches without going further than the biblical authors do. The inspired author of Scripture here clearly teaches that God was the ultimate cause of Hannah's barrenness. He closed her womb. And we can rightly conclude from this, we are meant to conclude from this, that God is sovereignly governing the world in such a way that his children experience pain and suffering and loss. Yet, at the same time, he does so in such a way that he never sins or causes people to sin. He's never less holy, less righteous, less good when he sovereignly works so that his children experience suffering in this life. There is mystery here that we cannot fully comprehend. But rather than get our heads all twisted in knots as we try to unravel the mysteries of divine providence, the biblical author here calls us instead to trust this God, to trust this God the way that Hannah did to trust that the Lord of hosts can and he will weave the strands of suffering in your life into a beautiful tapestry of redemption and glory. You only see the strands now and you cannot understand the working of God. But that does not mean he is not working. He was doing his work in Hannah by closing her womb. He was doing his work in Hannah by seeing to it that Penina would afflict her with cruel words. He was shaping Hannah's character. He was building her faith. He was teaching her to rely not on herself, but upon him. He was bringing her low that he might lift her up. He was emptying her that he might fill her. 
He was afflicting her that he might comfort her. He was wounding her that he might heal her. Remember, God gives grace to the humble. And this grace that God gives, it's not some substance that God dispenses from his heavenly medicine cabinet. God's grace is an expression of his love toward undeserving sinners. And love is not something he has. Love is something he is. God is love. And so the grace that God gives to the humble is nothing less than filling them with the love and goodness and joy and peace that come from God himself, that come from his presence with us. This is why I said the main point of this message is that God uses trials to humble us so that he can graciously give us himself. And we see from Hannah's prayer that this is what God did in Hannah. Notice in chapter 2, verse 1, her prayer does not begin with thanking God for his grace. It doesn't even begin with thanking God for giving her a son, though I'm sure she had thanked God for that many times. But her prayer in chapter 2, verse 1, begins as follows. My heart exults in the Lord. My heart exults in the Lord. This is the work that the Lord did in her through her affliction. He taught her to exult in him, to delight in him, to glory in him, to experience the fullness of joy in him. This is the work he did by closing her womb for those many years. Brothers and sisters, when you face bitter sorrow and trials in your life, maybe even today, maybe even right now, do not lose heart. God is working through your trials to complete this same good work in you. Consider the testimony of other saints in Scripture. The author of Psalm 119, likely David, wrote the following, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119.67 Also, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71 If God uses affliction to teach you his statutes and make you keep his word, then it is good for you. Paul, after he had endured a terrible affliction in Asia, when he was utterly burdened beyond his strength and despaired of life itself, he wrote the following, but that, that my my affliction, my despair, my weakness, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If God uses affliction in your life, to teach you to rely not on yourself but upon him, then it is good. The author of Hebrews also understood this truth. He wrote, But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If God uses pain to produce righteousness in your life, then it is good. This is nothing other than the logic of Romans 8, 28 and 29. God works all things together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If God uses trials to conform you into the image of his son, then it is good. So brothers and sisters, when trials come, and you know they will, Let us lean into God and entrust ourselves to him. 
Let us humble ourselves under his mighty hand and trust that he is working out our good in ways that we cannot now comprehend. You know, trials are not a magic formula that automatically work good in us. We must actively trust our God in the midst of them. If we do not, trials may cause us instead to harden our heart against God, to turn away from him, or to fall into unbelief. But like Hannah, we must not harden our hearts against God, but instead cry out to him in humble faith. It is good for us to grieve when we face bitter trials. And it is good for us to plead with God to remove the affliction from us, as Hannah did year after year. But we must also learn to look for the good that he is doing in our lives through our trials. This is how our God works. He uses trials to humble us, to empty us, and then he delights to graciously fill us with his grace and presence. He is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the message that we see in Hannah's life in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's also a theme that we're going to see played out across a grand, grander scale in the whole book. Because there we're going to see how God exalts a humble shepherd boy, David, to become a great king, while the mighty and proud king, Saul, would be rejected and judged by God. And David himself is promised that a future king would come from his line, a son of David who would be an even greater king. This greater king came to the earth in the, in the person of Jesus. Think about Jesus for a moment. Think how we see the messages of Hannah's life fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. No one ever came from so high to become so low. He existed in eternal fellowship and delight and glory with the Father. He was one with the Father before the foundation of the world. He is himself God, and he humbled himself by taking on human flesh, walking in weakness and sorrow and pain as a man on this earth, from infinite power to weakness, from infinite satisfaction to hunger and thirst, from infinite delight to sorrow, from infinite glory to shame, from infinite life to death. This is Paul's point in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Shameful and painful death of the cross, when he would endure not only the shame of public torture and execution, but the breaking of the bonds of eternal fellowship and delight and joy with his Father. The eternal fellowship that the Son and the Father enjoyed in each other was broken when Jesus humbled himself unto death on the cross and endured the punishment for sins that he had not committed. Paul continues in Philippians 2.9. Considering how Jesus humbled himself, therefore, therefore, because he humbled himself to this infinite degree, because he made himself nothing, because he walked this path of suffering, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The path of humility before exaltation. This is how our God works. And this is the message of the gospel for you as well this morning. 
If you will humble yourself before God, confess your sin before him, rely upon him in humble faith, then you will be exalted in glory together with King Jesus on the final day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But if you persist in pride, self-reliance, maintain your independence and your sense of self-worth before God, if you live life your own way, then you will be humbled in the final judgment and you will receive the just punishment for your sin, which is eternal death. Brothers and sisters, as we consider how Jesus humbled himself to endure suffering and loss, let us not grow weary or bitter or hard-hearted when God calls us to do the same. This is the way our God works, to shape our character into the image of Christ. And there is no greater good for us than to be conformed into his likeness. That we, like Hannah, might exult in the Lord. That we might delight in the Lord. This is the work that he will do in your hearts as you trust him while you walk through trials. I'm going to close in prayer with the words from the famous Puritan poem, The Valley of Vision. Please pray with me. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Amen.